Yes, I tell the girls all the time that they shouldn't do what society expects from them because society puts a low standard and low expectations on you as a woman and as a Black woman, especially. So we have to rise above that. We have to be better than what's expected in order to get ahead. And that's on the track and and in life. Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Inez Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hola, I'm Inez Babea. Hi, I'm Jamie Chen. Hi, I'm Nathan Schiller, and welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. Our guest today is Jean Bell, the founder and coach of Juness Track Club, a girls' track club based in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, founded in 1985. Jean is the coach and former athlete who specialized in the 200 and 400 meters. When not coaching, she's an administrative law judge with the New York State Department of Labor. Juness Track Club trains 28 to 35 girls per year in track and cross country. Jean, we have a lot of questions today, but first I'm going to toss it over to Jamie for our sports legacy segment. All right, Nathan, thanks. Tuskegee Institute track star Alice Coachman became the first Black woman athlete of any nation to win an Olympic gold medal and also was among the first American woman to win an Olympic medal in track and field. Raised in Albany, Georgia, Coachman moved to Tuskegee in Macon County at age 16, where she began her track and field success. During the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, we saw an explosion of Black women raise the bar in winning medals on the track. From Allison Felix to Delilah Muhammad, Athin Mu, and Sydney McLaughlin. How do you find ways to inspire girls from as young as six and through the rebellious teenage years? How do I find ways to inspire them? They have the inspiration to come to the team and run to begin with. When they're young, everybody wants to race and run, and it's a lot of fun. Keeping them interested through the teen years is the challenge because there are so many distractions for young girls and so many ways for them to take a left turn and get into trouble. So let's start with how you found yourself running. Who introduced you to the sport and why did you stick with it? Well, I ran all the time when I was young, just like any young kid. Um, And my brother had this very bright idea. He was uh, three years older than me. And when he got into high school, he wanted to start a girls track club in the Catholic school that we all went to and graduated from. So he started with his two sisters, his two younger sisters, and asked us to invite our friends. And that's really how we started in an organized team through our Catholic school team. And I ran up through, when I was a teenager, I joined a track club because I had dreams of going to the Olympics like all young athletes do. (laughs) One of the persons on that club, Cheryl Toussaint, had gone to the Olympics. So I was impressed and, and intrigued. And I ran for the Adams Track Club until I went to law school obviously never made it to the Olympics. (laughs) No shame in that. So Jean, I'm really curious as a former high school track runner also, 
what was it like in your time to run? What kind of facilities did you have? What were the conditions like? This was pre-running boom. Of course, running has been around for a long time, but not with the same popularity. And it was in some ways in the country, an emerging sport. To tell you the, the truth, not too much has changed in the 50 or 60 or so years since I started running as far as facilities. That's one of our main problems with running. You can always, I mean, back then there were dirt tracks and cinder tracks and they weren't well kept. Now there are beautiful tracks out there, but getting someone to let our team on them to train is the hard part. So really nothing has changed in, as far as the availability of venues to train, indoors, especially in New York and outdoors even. Why is it hard for you to get let onto tracks, especially with how much prestige your group has and for how long you've been doing it? Yeah, the prestige and a metro card gets me on the subway, but everybody is always telling me how important it is to keep kids off the street and keep them involved. But we do not get a lot of assistance as far as getting on the track. The, the tracks that are available in New York City are high school tracks. And to get on those tracks, you have to go through the Department of Education and get a permit. And you really have to get on your hands and knees and beg and then pay a lot of money. And it's just very difficult. Even before the pandemic, the red tape is crazy. And nobody seems to care that what I'm trying to do is keep kids off the street and out of trouble and into something productive. It's a hassle every year. So even if by now you have to still beg to get on these tracks. How did you do it in the beginning when you were starting out? In the beginning, the high school tracks were not well kept either. So anybody could walk on the track. I just had to bump heads with high school coaches who wanted to keep the girls off the track for some reason. It was just a macho male ego thing. But I had such good athletes that I had people who helped me to find places to train. And it's, <laughs> when I tell you, it's been a struggle every single year. And now that a lot of the tracks have been upgraded and locked up, it's even harder now to get on to a track and to find a venue to train. That's, that's the hardest thing I think I face. Do you have a favorite track? And then what do you mean about tracks being locked up? The best track for my team to train on is at Boys and Girls High School, which is in the, the heart of Bed-Stuy, where the majority of the girls live, and it's accessible by bus and by train. A lot of the girls' parents don't drive or have cars, so they have to get on the bus and train or walk to practice. So that is a central location for the girls to train in the outdoor season. And um, <laughs> it's been locked up, obviously it's been locked up for the past two years because of the pandemic, but getting someone to pick up the phone at the Department of Education and getting someone to pick up the phone at the school, because there's a whole series of persons that you have to go through 
the principal, the custodian. So everything is locked up. If you can't get a permit, if you can't get through to anyone, we've been training during the pandemic on a New York City Parks Department track, which is inundated with everyone and their dog and their stroller and their motorbikes. So it's it's a hassle. It's a struggle. That sounds like McCarran Park. Could it be could it be a liability issue that um the high schools keep it so locked up, like with general liability issues? I wish I knew. <laughs> because I mean, we're willing to pay the permit fees. And the girls are when the girls join the team, they have to register with the Amateur Athletic Union and the US Track and Field Association, which covers them as far as injuries at practice and at meets. We have liability insurance. So I don't see how that could be a problem. Why did you decide to focus your coaching on black girls? The club is headquarters. <laughs> the club is headquartered in Bedsty, Crown Heights areas of Brooklyn for girls ages five to seventeen. So obviously, I'm a black girl, and I can relate to the myriad problems that girls have as they go through the preteen and teen years. So I just think that I always wanted to coach girls. I think that. Boys have their own set of problems, even though I have two sons and I have no girls, but I can relate and I can speak to the girls about whatever problems they have on and off the track. And I understand because I went through the same thing. I was a young runner. I was a teen runner. I ran in college. So I know the struggles, the problems, the difficulties that they may have. And I'm able to speak to them about that. When you and I talked earlier, uh, you mentioned that also because of like Black girls tend to have, not that they have, but that society places less expectations on them. Was that also part of why you wanted to focus on that particular group? Because like we've, we've, there's been studies that just show that Black girls are disciplined in a much harsher way than other children in school. So was that something that you also wanted to? Yes, I tell the girls all the time that they shouldn't do what society expects from them because society puts a low standard and low expectations on you as a woman and as a Black woman, especially. So we have to rise above that. We have to be better than what's expected in order to get ahead. And that's on the track and, and in life. Because the same values that I try to teach them on the track as far as goal setting and resilience and being tough-minded is supposed to help carry them on into their working life and into their school life and just in general in their lives to make them strong women. When I was young, I was always told, oh, you can't do this because you're a girl. And I always resented it, even before I knew about women's lip. <laughs> so who were some of your mentors as a runner when you were growing up? Well, my brother who started me running. But my track coach for the club that I ran for, Fred Thompson, he was really 
at the forefront of bringing women and education together and making that a reality for a lot of young women who grew up in the Bed-Stuy area back then in the 60s and 70s and showing them that they could get out of the situation that that they were born into and go to college and do things that their parents never did. Even now, I have a lot of girls on my team whose parents never went to college and have no concept. This is 2022, but they have no concept of higher education. They may want things for their daughters, but they don't know how to go about that. My parents never went to college and they had no concept of how I was going to get there, but they encouraged me to try to get a higher education and I had to find my own way. Did you face any challenges as a female coach when you started? Because it is also that we talked about like, you know, women being able to go break barriers and ascend in different positions of leadership. What was it like for you as you started out as a young coach? When you're a Black woman, you have to make people respect. You have to stand tall and keep your head up high. And when I first started, people really didn't give me another thought. And they would approach girls on my team, men, of course, to come and join their teams because who was I and who was this new team? We were, we were nobodies. We were nothing. But the girls were very loyal to me. And I started out with 12 girls with Juness. And I did the best that I could. I was working by then. I had gotten out of law school and I used my money to buy uniforms and sweats and, and enter them into meets and rent vans because I had nothing else to do with my money, obviously. And I wanted this team to succeed and, and for the girls to succeed. But even now, you don't. I mean, I do. I get more respect now because I've been around so long and people know me. But sometimes you still have to put people in place and let them know that you mean business. I even have to do it with sometimes with the fathers on my team and remind them that this organization is run by women was started by women. It's run by Black women. All the coaches are Black women. Don't try to go over our heads. Don't try to go around us. You have to come to us for whatever you want. And that's just how it is. And if you can't handle that, there's a door. And I don't even think that they do it purposely. It's just, that's how men do. They don't see you in that position of power. Well, what sort of things specifically will they do to try to, <laughs> you knew I well, was going to ask you that. <laughs> I can give you one specific example. We were going to a national meet and when we do, my, my niece, Carol, who is a team manager, everybody's parents have to pay for their airfare or whatever. So they send in the airfare to our team account. And then once we get all of the money for all of the girls who have made it, who have qualified to go to the nationals, we buy all the tickets at one time. So we're all on the same flight, in the same seats. So one young girl who had just started, <laughs> and we were, we were working with someone, with a, a man who, was, who worked in the airline industry and was helping us get the best price and helping us get 
the best flights that we could get. So one of the fathers hadn't given in his money, but what he did was he called the man that we were working with to say, oh, you know, I'm going to send you my daughter's money, you know, get her flight. And the, the gentleman who was working with us told him, listen, I don't do anything without them telling me to. So <laughs> when I found out about it, I wrote a text to the father and told him, how dare you try to go over our heads and go and not come to us? We're in charge here. And that's who you have to deal with. And he apologized profusely the next time I saw him again. I, I don't know whether he meant to do that, but I, I realized that a lot of men have trouble with women in charge and women in power. I mean, we've had uh, one guy who was helping with the filming of the Netflix documentary. You know, he was so impressed with the girls. He said, you know, I run a little bit myself. I'm going to jump in the mouth run with them. I said, that's not a good idea. He said, no, no, because, you know, I run five miles. I run this, I run that. Okay. So next time he came, he got, he got on the line. And I said, go. And the girls took off. And, you know, he took off with them. But, I mean, they really left him in the dust. So when he finished, he said, you know, I knew they were going to take out fast, but I'm thinking to myself, well, they're going to slow down after a while. He said, but no, they just kept getting faster and faster. <laughs> he said, I will never do that again. <laughs> I said, I tried to warn you, but you think you can get in there just because they're 10 or 11. No, they do this every day and then they do their workout. Are you kidding me? <laughs> It's hilarious when men or boys try to jump in with girls. I love that. <laughs> Speaking of all those girls that you've coached, if you started in the 80s with 11 girls and you've been going strong since then, that's well over a thousand people. So what kind of relationships do you keep up with oh your athletes? Gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I could not hear from a girl for 15 years, literally a young lady who was being raised by her grandmother and I would take her each after each school year ended and keep her for the entire summer, take her to the nationals, put her in camp, you know, buy her what she needed for the summer and then return her when school started. So one of those summers that I was doing that, her grandmother died. Now her mother was in the streets and I asked her mother, do you want me to keep her? Because you haven't had her since she was born. She's nine years old now. And I'm willing to keep her, but you have to sign over guardianship. You have to give me her, her information so I can put her in school. And needless to say, that didn't happen. And, and I ended up losing her, well, losing her to her mother, which amounted to losing her. So I hadn't heard from her since she was 10 or 11 years old. And in 2020, I got a text from her and she's now 25 years old. And I didn't know who it was until I got to the end of it. And she was saying to me, I realize now what you were trying to do, that you were trying to help me. And I always thought of you as my second mother. 
And I really appreciate what you tried to do for me. And she went on like that. And it, it was just, it was heartwarming because, you know, I didn't know what had happened to her. I hear people tell me, oh, I saw her here, or I heard from her there, but I hadn't heard from her. And we had a really close relationship. So I was glad to hear from her and hear that she was doing okay, she's working. And also glad to know that she realized that I was trying to do something for her and lift her up out of her situation. But I tell you, every Mother's Day, I get at least 100 texts from girls who either are on the team now or who are adults with their own children and just telling me, Happy Mother's Day, I love you, you know. How are you? And throughout the year, really, I get <laughs> calls sometimes from random girls, women, just to check on me and see how I am and just say hello and talk over their years on the team. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask, I know you mentioned that you've taught the girls goal setting and some of the girls come from backgrounds in which their parents really have a different attitude towards school. Do you ever notice that after they've joined your track club and, and learn how to train and, and be disciplined, has their attitude towards school change? You know, do you feel that it helps them enhance their discipline towards being better performers in education? Definitely, because once you join the team, something that we are always, that we really push is excellence in education. And we, we, from sixth grade up, we make the girls and their parents hand in their report cards. So you're being held accountable for your grades and you're not going to stay on the team if you're a failing student because the object and the, the goal of the team is to get you into college on an athletic scholarship, either partial or full, whatever. But that's the goal. So if you're not interested in schoolwork, then you're wasting your time and my time. And that just doesn't happen. So once girls join the team, even if they had no concept of going to college, they see that all the other girls are talking about it. And if you're in a group and these are your teammates and that's what they're focused on, guess what? You're going to get focused on that too. You don't want to stand out in that crowd. No, that's great. That's like the power of the pack, you know, yes. like if we are all doing good together, then you will come in. If we are all doing bad together, that's also the other side of it. So earlier you mentioned that you were giving an example of like having the girls fly out to an, an event and you mentioned how the parents put in some of the money. How else do mm -hmm. you cover the cost of like flying the uniforms, the shoes, the track shoes, like how do you cover that? Do you have a dues for the girls? The girls do pay dues at the beginning of the year, but girls who can't or whose parents are not working or out of work or just can't afford it, then I'll put in that money for them or my sister will put in the money for them or my niece or my other sister. We all chip in to make that happen. And even when, and the team does some fundraising, which helps, not that much. But even when the girls go away, if a girl is good enough to qualify to go to the nationals, and we know 
that we're putting out the money for her uniform and her sweats and her travel, then before we go, we'll take her shopping and buy her new summer clothes and sandals because the rest of the girls on the team who may come from two parent working parent families and they know they're going away, then they'll get them new clothes and cute little bathing suits. So we don't want those girls who can't afford it to feel badly, to feel less than the rest of the girls. We want them to show up with their new clothes and they're out taking things out of their suitcase. And that's how girls are. You know, girls want to look cute. They want to have new outfits. You don't want to go and be in a room with your roommates and you just have old stuff or faded things or things with holes in it. No, that can't happen. So nobody else knows. The other girls don't know that we took them shopping and we bought them what they needed because they don't need to know. Everybody's the same here. Everybody has new things, cute things, nice things, and that's how it should be. I mean, when I was young, there were five of us in my family and both my parents were working, but we couldn't afford new things all the time. I got a lot of hand-me-downs and I had cousins who were the only child or the only girl in the family and they got the new fashions and the new shoes and the new sneakers where my sister and I did not. And I always felt a knot in my chest when I had to see them with their new things. And I remember one time when... (laughs) leather coats were out. (laughs) And my cousins came to my grandmother's house on Christmas with their new leather coats. And we were standing there and my mother said, I was dying. And my mother said, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I couldn't afford to get you that. And I said, I didn't want a leather coat because I didn't want my mother to feel badly that she couldn't afford to get me that because I knew if she could, she would. So I was like, "Mm, ah, I don't want that. That's just stupid. (laughs) But so I don't want the girls on the team to feel that way, to feel that knot in their chest that I can't afford this. Everybody has to be on the same level. I'm glad you brought that up because I think we've often talked about the lack of access to certain things. So whether it's like a track or being able to pay an entry fee for you it goes even farther, like these girls are good enough. Their parents just happen to be in a different socioeconomic background. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't go and be their best as this, the next level. And like you said, you're building confidence for them. So what lessons do you think the girls take away from that, that they can all go, they can all be there. And like for them, maybe even be like the first time they get on a plane. <laughs> yes. What is it like for you? Many times. So I think that the lesson that I want them to take away is that anything can happen. Like you can do anything and things can happen that you never thought would happen for you. A lot of times parents will put their daughters on the team. They'll find out about the dues and they'll say, oh, well, I can. I say, don't even, don't, let's not talk about money. Let's, you don't even say anything because I know that I'm going to jump in and take care of it. I remember when my sons were living here and they were young and they used to ask me, well, why do you have to pay for that? Or why do you have to do that? And I said, because I can, 
because I can. And I would want, I would have wanted somebody to do it for me when I was young. And why should this girl not go? Because her parent is in this predicament. And because I can, I will. I want to make it happen for her. And that's just something that, I don't know, they they had to understand. And I mean, they're grown men now, so they they do. And a lot of times my son will pitch in money if he sees that a girl needs it. I, I always agree that children are like sponges to their parents. So as their parents perform certain deeds, it kind of <laughs> teaches their child, you know, to do good. I'm going to pivot a little bit. Uh, let, let's let's talk about um, the opposite sex. Black men, <laughs> black men runs the national group that encourages black men to run. Recently, they had a story about a member's high school experience where he wanted to try out for cross country, where the coach basically told him he was probably looking for the track and not <laughs> cross country. Needless to say, he never went back. Why is it important? for you to also have cross country for your girls? Well, like I say, I mean, you can do anything. You shouldn't listen when people say you can't do this because you're a girl or because you're a black girl or because of anything. Like try anything, try events, try cross country. We have all the girls on the team train cross country mainly because it makes them stronger, even if you're a sprinter. And then sometimes with the younger girls, we or the new girls, we find out, well, this is their niche because you don't know until you try. So I would never tell somebody you can't do this. A lot of times girls are on the team for a while and then they say, oh, can I try the hurdles or can I try the long jump? And I say, give it a try. You never know, you might be good you know, we'll train you and then you get in it in, in a track meet. It's just unfortunate when girls are discouraged and that happens enough in their personal lives. It shouldn't happen on the track. Is there a perception that Black people would perform better on track and not <laughs> in distance? Well, of course, there's a perception that Black people are sprinters and maybe for the majority of us, that's true. But there's something for everyone. And there's some great black distance runners and cross country runners. And because we, all of us black people have some African in us and the Africans are amazing at distance. So I say, give it a try. I know this doesn't have anything to do with track, but when I was in college, before I graduated, you had to go see your guidance person so I went to see her. I had good grades. And she said, well, what do you want to do when you graduate? I said, I want to go to law school. <laughs> so she said, oh, no, you can't go to law school. I don't think you have the grades to get into law school. So I said, oh, OK, thank you. And, you know, I just applied to law school on my own because I wasn't listening to that. I didn't know anyone who could help me get into law school or who could even tell me what to do. But I figured out what I had to do because I had a goal and that was my goal. And I wasn't going to let that goal be put aside because someone told me that I couldn't do it. I feel like your experience was with your guidance counselor was similar to mine. Maybe it's like <laughs> a New York City guidance counselor thing. Ugh, it's ridiculous. 
I know you mentioned earlier that you have challenge in finding access to a track. So what are the challenges in finding places for the girls to train for cross country? Like, where do you go? Well, cross country is not difficult because cross country is running a park and, and parks are open spaces. We train in Prospect Park in Brooklyn until the time changes. And then it gets too dark because we have the girls run what's called the loop around Prospect Park, which is three point one miles, 3.3 miles, I can't remember exactly. And you can't have eight-year-olds in the park in the dark. So once the time changes over in October, we transfer over to Fort Greene Park, which is a small neighborhood park, but you can see the girls in the park when they just do smaller and multiple loops. <laughs> You're uh, bringing up all these wonderful places from my past life in Brooklyn. <laughs> I created my own loop in Prospect Park where I only ran on the trails and all the, the little hills. And I would never see anyone running the same exact route. But I would see the high school kids running cross country. I wanted to just go back to something you said about the running aspect of how cross country makes track runners better. Could you explain that a little? Cross country is distance running. And for young girls, it's really not over three miles. But depending on your age, you run a certain amount of mileage um, in meets, but it makes you strong. It gives you extra wind and endurance. And it builds up your legs, obviously, your lungs and your capacity to run. So even if you're a sprinter, we have the distance runners train cross country and running cross country meets. The sprinters train cross country and then we'll do half half in the park, half on the track to keep their speed up. We want them to be strong, but we also want them to be fast. Now, when we first start and new girls in September, and new girls come on the team, we put everybody in the first cross-country meet because we don't know who's a sprinter and who's a distance runner. And you'll have a new girl that will run well in the cross-country meet, and we'll say she's a distance runner. So we know where we're going, what we're going to do with her. But cross-country makes you strong. And these days, in order to run fast middle distance times, which is what we focus on on our team, the 400, the 800, you have to be, you also, not just fast, but you have to be strong. The 800 has become a sprint, if you know anything about track. <laughs> oh, I know that pain. <laughs> I just want to talk about issues. I know you mentioned body confidence. Young girls during these times also start dealing with body issues. Female athletes are always marketed as tall, thin, sexy. How do you help them navigate these to have a positive body image of themselves? Well, most of the girls on the team join when they're young, six, seven, eight years old. So when you're running for eight years and you're 16 and your body is, has changed dramatically, usually you're pretty slim. <laughs> We train very hard, so they're pretty slim. But for girls going from age, I guess, 11, really, to 13, 
that's when your body changes the most. They get hips, they get breasts, and it takes some getting used to and some adjustments in their training, in their, in their concept of themselves. And towards that end, on my team, we have, we have a class, I guess you could call it, on puberty and body changes. And we get 10, nine, we invite the nine, 10, 11 year olds to come and have a little health, it's called the health class because we talk about menstruation and body changes and what you go through because girls change tremendously from 11 to 13. And a lot of times they don't know what's going on and not just with their bodies, but emotionally they change and they have all these feelings and, and thoughts and someone needs to explain that to them before it starts happening. So we have a health class, we show a little film, we stop it at points and take questions and give answers and just give out information. And I let the girls know that as your body changes, people will react to you differently. Boys, even men will approach you differently, will say things to you or may touch you in a different way. And if you feel uncomfortable with that, you should say something, you should speak up. A long time ago, I had a neighbor who was running for me and she was, I don't know, 11 or 12. And she was telling me how she couldn't stand her gym teacher. Like, what are you talking about? You're a runner. How could you not like your gym teacher? Because every time after gym, he's always smacking me on my butt. What? Okay. I said, did you tell him to stop? Yes. I always tell him to stop. And he does it. He does it every day. I said, when you go to school tomorrow, tell him if he touches you again, you're going to tell your father and let your father know what's happening. And she did. And he never touched her again. But when you're young, when you're 10, 11, 12, and a, a man approaches you in a certain way, a grown man, or touches you, and you don't, you feel uncomfortable, but you don't want to say anything because you're embarrassed or you don't know exactly what is happening. So it just goes on. So I, I need to let the girls know, listen, even if you don't want to tell your mother, come tell me because I'll take care of it. <laughs> That's great. Actually, that when you were telling us that story, it made me think about the U.S. gymnastics girls and what they went through with the so-called like yes. medical coach, medical doctor for the team, like being put in that position of them not understanding what is happening to their bodies. I think we have conversations about this as far as that the danger for like, sometimes like women are pushed to the limit where like, you know, they start their period and how like, you know, overtraining can also hurt their bones and like their future ability to have children. And I'm wondering like, is that conversation also something that has evolved for you as from when you started to like where you are now that you talk to the girls about the importance of like nutrition and eating properly and hydrating and rest? Yes, yes. That's something that we talk to them about constantly about how to take care of yourself, how to take care of your body. Even, even the young girls, the teenagers, 
you have to stay hydrated, you have to eat correctly, what you should eat in the morning. And I tell girls all the time, don't come to my practice if you haven't had lunch. If you were in school and didn't eat all day, then you're useless to me because you can't run a car without gas. And you can't come to practice and train properly without something in your body. So we, we talk to them really casually about this. And I at the parents' meetings, I give out, I, well, when we used to have the parents' meetings in person, I handed out information on proper nutrition and what they need to eat and drink and how they need to get proper rest. And I tell the parents all the time, if your daughter is staying up late at night and not getting her proper rest, hello, take her phone. And it's interesting that you also mentioned that because we had a previous guest, Ashley, who talked about that when she was on the cross country team, she had an eating disorder and she would overtrain still like very young in high school and even in college. So I'm wondering, do you also talk to the girls about that? Because like you said, they start training very early, their bodies change. So like, as Jamie was alluding to before, like having this positive body image that they don't feel that even though you train, you don't need to look a certain way. The way that you are is just, it's perfect. So I'm wondering, do you talk to them about eating disorders? I haven't had that conversation with girls about eating disorders. I And I haven't really in all these years, I haven't had any girl that had that problem. And I guess that's why it just never came up. I just basically talked to them about proper nutrition and let them know that they have to eat in order to run and they have to eat well. When we go away to national meets and the girls, we all eat together in restaurants and I insist that they all have water. I, I tell the waitress, water is all around and they can have as much of that as they want. There's no soda or juice or anything like that. And I insist that they get salad or green vegetable to go with their entree. And they don't like it, but that's how it is. What do you look for for the girls to be on the team? What is the criteria that want? It's hard because a, a lot of kids join when they're very young. I've taken girls as young as four. I mean, they're incredible athletes when I take them at four. And the girls on the team, everybody at practice has to do, after they jog and stretch and do their drills, they have to do a mile run before we start our workout. And you have to do it under eight minutes. And I don't give a darn how old you are. So I had this little girl out there one time. She was doing the mile run. And another coach came up to me and said, how old is that little girl? So I said, she's four and a half. He said, she looks like she has on a pamper. I said, she does not have on a pamper. I, I very rarely take girls as young as four or five. I try to start at six. But if there's a girl who is a terrific athlete who is four or five, I certainly won't say no because you're four or five. If you can do the work, you can be on the team. Now I do draw the line at three. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're laughing, but people contact us. Oh, my daughter would like to join the team. Well, how old is she? She's three. Like, really? What are we? This is not nursery school. We are not babysitters. Kids will just do 
amazing things, whatever you think they can't do. Like, I would never say, oh, she's sick. She can't do this. No, never. I don't know what she can do. <laughs> Some six-year-olds are tremendous. I have a girl on my team, Julia. She's 13 now, but her older sister was on the team and it's now in college. And her younger sister, who is five going on six, but when she was four, she could do 25 straight back push-ups without stopping. She's very, very strong. So we're just waiting for her to say, I'm ready to get on track because she's going to be amazing. And she likes to work out, jog with her sister, but she hasn't made that commitment yet. And I said, when she does, those other six-year-olds better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm really looking for is, I, I tell people all the time, a girl with grit, a girl with a fire in her eyes and in her belly. And I, I always, always, always ask the little kid, do you want to run? And she'll say yes. And I'll ask the parent, does she want to run or do you want her to run? Because if she's doing it to please you, it's not going to work because it's a lot of hard work. She has to want to do it and want to be committed to it. So I look for girls who love running like I did. And, and you can tell because there's a spark and they come. I tell parents all the time, like your daughter will come the first day and she'll run and she'll be exhausted and she may cry, she may throw up. And if she gets in the car and says, I want to come back tomorrow, then she's a real runner. Now, if she gets in the car and says, that woman's insane, don't ever take me back there, then she doesn't really want to be a competitive runner. She may want to run, but not competitively. And that's the difference. Speaking of competitive, <laughs> Three of your runners, the Shepherd Sisters, you knew I was going to ask, <laughs> were featured in the recent Netflix documentary, Sisters on Track. What did it mean to you to see them and Juness elevated into that public atmosphere? It was crazy. <laughs> Things just started rolling along so fast with them and the film and the making of the film. And I just really never thought that never in a million years that I think that I would see my face on <laughs> Netflix. Even now it makes me laugh. <laughs> and I don't even like turning on Netflix because that lets me know that there's going to be a scene with me on it. But it really has shown people the true nitty gritty of grassroots teams and how that works and how that happens. I mean, Juness is a little different from other teams because we try to do more for the girls outside of track. But basically, people don't know a lot about grassroots teams. They don't know where Olympic athletes come from. They don't just appear in their 20s and become these great athletes. A lot of them start out in school teams or on grassroots clubs, and they run competitively for years and years and years before they can make the Olympic team. It kind of reminded me of the Williams sisters when their father wanted them to skip juniors <laughs> and go straight to pros because all the coaches were telling him, you have to do the circuit, the junior circuit. And he says, no, they're ready for pros. And people I, didn't realize. I didn't see the movie yet, so don't 
Tell me. Uh, oh, no, I, it was in an interview. Um, oh, okay. It's in their wiki. It's in their wiki. <laughs> you know, the story has been around for a little bit. I know. But maybe I think the, the documentary can be on your belt when you're like, you need that track open for your girls to use. Like, hey, have you seen, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. you that might want to be the school that might be in the next film. That and a Metro card, yeah. <laughs> Get me on the A train. <laughs> so, Gina, do you run? Do you run with the girls ever? Funny. Do I run? I'm Seriously. 64 years old. I do not run. Uh, 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 what does that mean? Uh, see, no, no, no. One of my that's tenets. breaking your own your own. Oh, no. I know, I know, I know. There are many people who 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 run. My tenant, Miss Thelma Wilson, is 92 years old, and she stopped running marathon. Wow. Yes, and she was a teacher for New York City Department of Ed for many, many years. She's been in the same apartment in the West Village, maybe like since 1943. So anyway, Miss Wilson, I think, still ran the marathon distance up until 80 something because i i see her she stopped taking the stairs though now uh, but she is 92 thank god (laughs) but when i've spoken to her she still ran distance until 80s in her most people who run distance like that pick up running late in life and but when you've run really your whole since i started walking i guess i was running I don't think my knees would appreciate me trying to run anywhere. And I really don't have the time. I go from work to practice, work to practice. And on the weekends, I'm at track meets. I barely have time to breathe. Do you find yourself daydreaming about what it was like when we were younger, running around the track at full speed, coming around a curve? Do you ever get nostalgic for that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's crazy because whenever I am looking at the marathon, you know, the marathon can certainly inspire you because you see all kinds of people out there running. And I always think to myself, gosh, I can do this. I used to run. I know I can do it. I just have to train for it. And I told my son my last birthday, I said, my 65th birthday, which is the day of the marathon, I'm going to run. I'm going to run the marathon. (laughs) So everybody laughed. Everybody thought that was a big joke. So I said, as soon as it gets warm, I'm either going to buy myself a treadmill or I'm going to start running. But I injured my hamstring last week. So that sort of put the kibosh on my training. But I'm still thinking about it. It's it's a dream of mine. It might turn out to be a nightmare, but... uh, (laughs) I don't know. I I always get inspired when I see the, the marathon. There'll be moments in the marathon where it will be so great, but when you cross that finish line, yes, be like, oh, let's do it again. <laughs> I'm sure once <laughs> I cross the finish line, I would say, I'll never do this again, but I've done it. Jean, I want to go to the hot mic section, but I'm just curious with your work as a judge and your work in law, is there any connection between that and your work as a track coach? Not really. It's just two different worlds. My work period allows me to have the finances to help whatever girls need help. But really, my work as a judge really has nothing to do. I'm no longer with the Department of Labor now. I switched over to 
the workers' compensation board. It's still with the state, but it's different. Nobody at work knows that I'm a coach or what I do. They don't know that I leave work and I zoom into Brooklyn to go to practice until eight, eight o'clock at night. And then I get home at nine or 9.30, but nobody knows about that unless you've seen the film and, and nobody has known about it for years, for 37 years. <laughs> I've kept it a closely hidden secret. Is it your other passion? Because I, I'm, what I'm thinking is that someone told you that you shouldn't go to law school because you won't make it. And then I'm sure if someone has told you, you can't be a coach, you're a woman. So <laughs> where do you think they each play a different part of your personality? I guess it's the same part of my personality because I don't let people tell me what I can't do. And I try to show the girls, the girls on the team, for the most part, after you've been on the team for a while, the parents will say, oh, she's a, a judge, she's a lawyer, she's a judge. And I want the girls to know you can be a doctor, you can be a scientist, you can be a judge, you can be whatever you want to be. Once the girls get in high school, I really start talking to them about what their interests are and what they would like to major in and let them know. Because if your parent or anybody in your family didn't go to college, then you don't know anything about what college is about. Even in this year with the internet and all the information that's available, some of the girls on the team have absolutely no idea about college. I was speaking to one young lady who's a junior and I was asking, what are you looking to do once you graduate from high school? We want to get you into a college. What do you want to major in? She said, I don't want to go to college. I said, then what the heck are you doing here? I might not have used those words, but I said, we are trying to get you into college. What are you going to do once you graduate next year? Hello, you're going to sit on your mother's couch for the rest of your life. Do you want to do something? What do you want to be? She didn't want to tell me at first. I said, come on, tell me. I want to be an actress. Okay, well, that's something. I said, but did you know that in college, you can major in drama? You can major in theater? They will teach you how to be an actress. I said, you think actresses that you see on TV or in the movies, they just suddenly appear? They take classes. They learn how to be an actress. And she had no clue that you could major in drama or in theater. And I said, it's not all about math and science and English. I said, there's so many majors and there's so many things you can choose from. And if you're running, you don't even have to pay for it. So that's even better. <laughs> that's great. I think that that's, that's a great way for them to just know that there's more for them to strive for more. So that's going to take us to our hot mic sex segment of the podcast, where for two minutes, you get a final thought. My final thoughts are that there are so many, many young girls and children out there who need direction, who need guidance. And I have my little team and I do my little part, but anybody can get into a child's life and be 
that person who helps them, whether you're a teacher or a coach or just a mentor, they can get involved in the many, many programs that are out there for children and get involved and be interested because you don't know the one thing you may say or the one thing you may do, which can change a child's mind and change their life. And that's if so important because there are children out there who are lost and because they don't have that guidance and they don't have anybody who they can speak to. I just, I just want people to understand that you don't have to be a coach but you can get into an organization that does you know, work with children and show them what you do. None of the girls on my team know about hosting a podcast or anything like that. Um, and there's a lot of things out there. I know I wanted to, I didn't have a lot of information, but I wanted to be a doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief. And the lawyer part sounded the most interesting to me, although... I don't know. I haven't given up on the Indian chief. So everybody get out, get off your duffs and go help a kid out there and change their lives. That's all I have to say. Jean Bell, thank you so much for joining us as founder and coach of Juness Track Club. You've given us you know, such insight into the incredible work that you're doing with the young girls in Brooklyn. It's really been an honor for you to join us. You're also our first judge. So Yes, thanks for joining us. And I want to thank my co-hosts, as always, Inez and Jamie, and of course, our listeners. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store, and follow us on Spotify.